Welcome to the Podcast at the Hill. You are about to hear a message from Pastor Daniel Blalock entitled, Paul's Thorn in the Flesh, from 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. If you have your Bible tonight, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter tonight. 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter tonight. 2 Corinthians 12, we're going to look at three verses tonight. Although the whole passage would be worth bearing out, I'll leave that for your homework assignment. You can read that on your own, amen? All of chapter 12. I'd start in 1122, but you don't have time for that tonight. So let's look at three verses together. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 to 10. These four verses together right here, 7 to 10. Paul says, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. May the Lord bless the reading of his word and his people said, Amen. Amen. Many years ago, Henry Nouwen said, in our woundedness, we can become a source of life for others. Great little book called The Wounded Healer. He talks about that very principle. I want to talk to you tonight about Paul's thorn. Say Paul's thorn. This little collection of four verses tonight is deep water in the New Testament. And it's a passage that lots of people have conjectured a lot about. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the things that are uncertain. I want to focus on the things that are very certain in the passage tonight. Amen? Amen. Uh, Whenever we begin this conversation about the flesh, you know, we always want to find out about, okay, what is it? That's always the first question. What was this thorn that God gave or allowed or however you want to put it in his life? Amen? Uh, And lots of people have offered up lots of different options about what it could be. Amen? Well, I want to tell you tonight that as we begin, I would say this. Number one, we don't know what it is. Amen? We don't know for sure what it is. But we do know that God was up to something here. We don't know what it was. Say that with me. We don't know what it was. Now, people have conjectured all kinds of things. Some people have thought it might be a physical affliction or an embarrassing physical disability. Some people thought that it was that. Some people believed it was his eyesight. And you say, where in the world would you get that idea? Well, they got it from Galatians 4, verses 13 and 14, when Paul writes to the Galatians. And he's been, um, he, he describes this to them. And he says, you know, because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me even as an angel from God in Christ Jesus. So many people believe that it was a physical uh, illness or some malady in that way. Um, In another place, he talks about the love that the church had for him, and he said, you would have given your own eyes to me if it were possible. 
And some people think that maybe it was blindness or, or, or legal blindness, as we would say in our day. Not fully, but partial blindness that he couldn't see as he ought to. Uh, in one place, he picks up the pen from the scribe and writes in his own hand. And he says, you see what a large letter I have written to you in my own hand, as if his handwriting were large. And that would be the mark of a man whose vision was damaged. Some people believe he never fully recovered his vision from the road to Damascus experience, that there was always the little residual issue there that reminded him of that vision that he received from the Lord. Now, um, Pastor, what do you believe about that? Well, I don't know that I believe that because the Bible says pretty clearly that the day after he received his vision, God sent a man named Ananias to lay hands on him that he might receive his sight. Amen? So I, I don't believe we can argue a lot about it being his vision necessarily. The Lord healed his vision and sent someone to do that, that he might be able to do what he was called to do. We don't know exactly what it was. Uh, my father was always of the opinion that it was um, exactly what the Bible said it was. A messenger of Satan to buffet me. <laughs> that that's all the scripture says. My dad believed this. I've never heard anyone, anyone else say this, but, um, you know, my dad's a good enough Bible scholar for me, and he believed this, and he had good ground to stand on. He said he believed it was the fact that in every city where Paul preached, trouble got stirred up. I mean, the devil stirred up people against him everywhere he went. He faced opposition, right? And my father was of the opinion that that was the thorn. Everywhere Paul preached, the enemy started a ruckus against him. And everywhere Paul went, he had to deal with the fact that the devil was always stirring up strife and getting him thrown in prison and getting him beaten and all the different things that happened, that this was the work of the enemy to try to discourage Paul and hinder the work of the gospel and that it was for deliverance from this that Paul was crying out, Lord, stop him from doing this everywhere I go. Must this happen in every town where I preach? Must, must I constantly face this battle with him every time I take the gospel and plant a new church? Well, we don't know what it was, right? We don't know for sure what it was because the Bible doesn't say exactly what it was. And I want to tell you, it is a great gift to us that we don't know what it was. Because one of the great things about the Bible is our ability to read ourselves into the story. And if God told us what the infirmity or the weakness was in Paul's life, we would say, well, God's grace was good enough for that one, but my problem was not his problem, so this doesn't apply to me. But the fact that it's left vague and general, the fact that it's open-ended and generic, means I'm given the liberty to read myself back into the story. I don't know what Paul's weaknesses were, but I know what my weaknesses are. Amen? I don't know what Paul's problems, thorny issues that he faced in life were, but I know my thorny issues. I don't know the things that I wish God would just remove from my life or my personality or my character or whatever it might be. I, I don't know what they are in Paul's life, but I know what they are in my life, and I'm thankful that God left it nondescript in the text because that gives me permission to say whatever his weaknesses were God was able to help him God is going to be able to help me also so thank God we don't know what the thorn was amen the fact that we don't know is a gift say it's a gift we don't know what it was but we do know what it was for <laughs> 
We do know what it was for. Paul says very specifically that this was given to me. Say given. The idea Paul is using this language here is that this was given as if it were a gift. (laughs) As if this were some nice thing that God had packaged up and shipped to his address. As if this were a prize. As if this were a Christmas present. This was given to me. It's interesting he doesn't say by whom. He leaves that passive open. Some people would say, well, no, the devil was doing this. And some people would say God was doing it. But we do know the purpose. And the purpose was this. He said, it was given to me. He said, notice in verse, verse um, 7 here. He said, it was given to me, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations. This thorn was given to me, lest I become exalted above measure. That's what verse 7 says. Amen? So we don't know what it was, but we know what it was for. Now, uh, that's interesting to me because Paul's issue uh, was the very issue that the church he was writing to was struggling with. Paul's issue was pride or arrogance, the fact that he would struggle. Paul was a very gifted man. He had received more revelation and had more visions than anyone else of his time period. He had been given revelation by God for three and a half years in the desert. Jesus taught him personally and revealed the gospel to him and walked him through the Old Testament and showed him how Jesus was on every page. God had given him this gospel right by revelation. The Bible says that uh, there were people at Corinth that were boasting and bragging about the revelations they'd received. And Paul, not willing to call his own name, says, I know a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but I know that he walked through the third heaven and he beheld things that were not lawful to speak and he's not even permitted to write about them or tell anybody about them because of the visions and the grandeur that he saw. Amen. You may wonder why sometimes I don't get excited as a pastor when people come and tell me that they want me to go watch a movie or read a book about someone who died and came back and they're going to tell me all the details about heaven. I don't mean to offend you and if you're blessed by those then be blessed, amen? Um, But I probably won't read them because you see if Paul was not permitted to come back and tell everything he saw, I doubt that anyone else is permitted to either. And so I'm a little questionable whenever someone hands me a book like that. Amen. Now, if it blessed you, don't let me steal your blessing. Amen. Amen. Glory to God. Uh, Just that's not my cup of tea, okay? But Paul was prone to pride. He had this weakness in himself. He was tempted to be proud or to be arrogant and and to come across that way. And when you read his letters, he's very learned, very intelligent. And and, and that can really go to someone's head. He'd had all these great supernatural experiences. And so the Lord allows this thorn in his flesh, this messenger of Satan, this demonic entity to cause trouble or pain for him and he does it for a purpose. Now the enemy came and meant it for evil, right? But the Lord meant it for good. The Lord meant it for good. Satan sent it as a hindrance but God used it as a helper. Amen? That's what the Bible tells us. So the enemy sent this to destroy Paul. The enemy sent this to wipe him out because he thought if I can just make him weak, if I can hit him in his soft spot, if I can take him out at the knees, he'll never be able to do anything great for God. 
But what the enemy didn't realize is that the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men and the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And God took the very tool that the enemy used to hinder Paul and actually used it to help Paul because what the thorn did is it kept Paul dependent on God. It kept Paul dependent on the Lord. So this was God's reversal that he used in Paul's life. What the devil meant for a hindrance, God used as a help. Amen? Now, many preachers in the hyper-faith movement to date don't like this passage, and they try to explain it away. Paul saw his affliction as God's way of keeping him humble, lest he yield to the temptation to boast over his revelation. Uh, in verse 7, we see this. Many preachers in the hyper-faith movement try to dismiss this and say that, um, you know, that none of us need uh, to have such a thorn today because we've never experienced the kind of revelation that Paul received. But if you study 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, it becomes clear that the Corinthian struggle was with pride and Paul's thorn was given to cure pride or spiritual arrogance. And so what Paul is saying to them by extension is, if you don't get this under control, the Lord's going to help you get it under control have you noticed that in the Christian life I can deal with my issues or the Lord will send me a helper to deal with my issues you notice that amen my daddy had a helper he wore it right around the middle of his person amen and when I was having trouble doing what I needed to do my daddy just applied the helper amen can I tell you God's got a helper and if what we would not do willingly on our own, when the helper shows up, amen, when the, as Jimmy said yesterday, we were talking about old times in school, when the board of education is applied to the seat of higher learning, all of a sudden a light bulb goes on in our cerebral cortex and we have a, an aha moment that maybe we should after all do what we're supposed to do, amen? Well, this, this thorn in the flesh became Paul's helper to do what he ought to do. This was God's great reversal. Uh, many people would say, well, no, I don't believe that. In our fallenness, we have a tendency to take credit for what God's grace has done in our lives. Paul wanted to boast over how knowledgeable he was. He wanted to brag about the experiences he'd had with God. The problem is, Paul didn't do anything to earn those experiences. Paul couldn't take credit for those experiences. Those were gifts. God had given him those experiences. Oftentimes in the ministry, we're tempted to do that. Oftentimes in the Christian life, we're tempted to do that. In our fallenness, we forget that it was God's grace that saved us and God's power that changed us. And we can look down our nose at people who have fallen and and we stand. Well, listen, you stand by God's grace. Amen. It's easy for us who've been saved and in the church for a while to look at people who are in the world and who are living and making a train wreck of their lives. And it's easy for us to get self-righteous. And it's easy for us to say, well, I'm living this life. Why can't they live this life? I'm not tangled up in all of that. Why are they tangled up in all of that? But that is our pride speaking because we can't take credit for the change in our character. Listen, for the problems that we don't struggle with, for the positive impact that our lives and ministries have on other people around us. That's the operation of God's grace in our lives. We can't brag about that or take credit for that. That is pure gift. Say it's a gift. We can't boast in that. We can't glory in that. We can't take credit for that. God gave that to us. God's the one who works in us and through us. Amen? Amen. And so Paul struggles with that. And so do many of us. 
in our fallenness, the only one thing that often keeps us humble and depending on God are the problems, the things we can't handle. Most of us don't stay on our knees because of our blessings. And that is to our shame because we are blessed people and we've been given enough by God that it ought to put us on our knees every day saying thank you, thank you, thank you. We've been so blessed by God we ought to shout Chad down every time he takes the keyboard. Amen? Because God's been so good to us we ought to not be able to wait to give him glory and honor and praise. But the reality is most of us myself included, what gets us and keeps us on our knees usually are not our blessings but our burdens. Amen. They're not the promises kept but the problems that we still meet with every day. These are the things that drive us to our knees and force us into dependence upon God. And so we've got God's great reversal. What the devil wanted to use as a hindrance, God used as a helper. Well, notice number two, notice Paul's request. Paul cried out like any of us would cry out. And in verse 8, he says to the Lord, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Do you see it? He said, I pleaded with the Lord. He didn't just ask. He pleaded. He was serious. He prayed earnestly. He cried out to God. He was, he, he was sincere. He, he lifted his voice to God. This word pleaded is the idea of getting down and begging and earnestly entreating the Lord. And the Bible says not only was he not lacking in passion, he was also not lacking in persistence he didn't ask the Lord one time he didn't ask the Lord a couple times he asked the Lord three different times and I don't believe that was on the same occasion I believe over and over and over time after time after time Paul would have prayer meetings over this thing that he wanted God to move and there he was verse 8 most of us do what Paul did we repeatedly ask God to take it away we reason with God that we would be so much more useful to the kingdom if the problem was removed. Lord, if I wasn't in this financial tight, I could really bless the church and I'd fill out one of them faith promise cards that the pastor keeps waving at us every Sunday. Amen. Lord, if I didn't have this physical disability, I'd be able to do so much more for the kingdom. Lord, if I didn't struggle with the temptation in this area that I do, if I didn't fight that so hard daily, then I'd really be able to invest myself in the kingdom of God. But it takes so much energy for me not to cave in in this area. I feel like I fight it all the time. Lord, if you would just take that tendency or that proclivity away. Paul didn't just ask, he pleaded. We try to pump up our faith. We claim the promises. We go on a fast. We watch Benny Hinn and the 700 Club hoping one of those words of knowledge at the end of the show is for us, right? We lift our hands to the screen and they call out things and we go, nope, that's not mine. Nope, nope, nope. Well, maybe tomorrow, right? You know you've done it. Every Pentecostal in the room's done it. A couple of the Baptists have done it. Amen. We do it. Hmm. <laughs> We drive across the country and get in every prayer line we can find. We read books on how to get our miracle. We rebuke the devil. We call it done by faith. We confess every sin we can remember for the past 15 years and a couple we probably didn't even do. We do all we know to do to get God to move on it. But you know what? Sometimes Paul's request is followed by God's refusal. In a word, God says, no, no. <laughs> 
I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do. I'm not going to do it the way you're asking me to do anyway. I'm not going to take it away. I'm not going to just snap my fingers and poof, it's gone. Paul, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to answer this in the way that you want me to answer it. Now, I didn't say God didn't answer it. I said God didn't answer it the way Paul wanted it answered. Raise your hand if you've been in that club. Amen? Yes. <laughs> the Lord answered, but not the way Paul wanted it to be answered. Verse 9, and he said to me, the Lord answered back, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Again, I've heard preachers try to explain this away and say, well, see, there's the problem right there. God wasn't going to make this thing leave. It was Paul's responsibility to make this thing leave. God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And they explain it like this. God had already given Paul the authority to rebuke the devil. God had already given Paul the authority to stand in faith and make this thing go away. Paul didn't need to ask God to do it. Paul needed to put his foot down and do it himself. Hmm. What do you think about that? I think there's a Greek word for it. It's called baloney. <laughs> I don't believe it at all. I've heard preachers explain it away by that, claiming Paul shouldn't have asked God to remove the problem. He should have exercised his spiritual authority and rebuked the devil. That's absolutely absurd. If anybody knew how to stand in spiritual authority, Paul did. If anybody had faced down the devil and rebuked him, Paul knew how to do that. He didn't have any trouble with a little demon-possessed girl who was chasing him around saying, these men have come from God and are speaking the truth of God. The Bible says he turned around and with a word rebuked the devil and the spirit came out of her. Obviously, Paul didn't have much trouble dealing with the devil because the Bible says that there was a group of, of evangelists, Jewish evangelists, who tried to take up exorcism as a way of life one day. And they came in and the seven sons of Siva found them a boy that was eat up with the devil and came over and said, we adjure you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the devil answered back and said, Jesus we know and Paul we know. But we don't know you. And the man jumped on him and beat the clothes off of him and they ran out naked. Amen. But what's interesting is those demons knew who Paul was. And they recognized his spiritual authority as an apostle and a servant of the Lord. So Paul didn't have any problem walking in spiritual authority. And if it was as easy as Paul should have just turned around and rebuked the devil, don't you think Paul knew that? Amen. What's interesting to me is the people who say things like that assume that they're smarter than Paul was. There's a thorn waiting on you. There's a thorn with your name on it, probably bigger than the one Paul had. Amen. You can write Brother Copeland and tell him I said so if you want to. Oh, did I call his name? Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> this is error. Amen. It isn't true. And what's worse is it is a discouragement to God's people because we listen to stuff like that and we go try to practice it. And you know what happens to us? Same thing that happened to Paul. It doesn't move. We rebuke till our rebuker's broke and it's still there. We plead till we can't and it's still there and we wonder what does this mean for me does it mean I'm not saved does it mean I don't have the Holy Ghost does it mean there's something in my life there's sin in my life not necessarily 
Listen, Paul knew about spiritual authority. He knew how to cast out demons. He'd seen people healed and delivered. He'd seen the dead raised under his ministry. The obvious meaning of the verses is as clear as the nose on your face. Paul had a problem. He desperately wanted God to miraculously remove, and God didn't do it. How's that for plain? That's what it says, isn't it? That's exactly what happened. God told him he didn't intend to deliver him from it, but rather to give him the grace and strength to go through it and to deal with it. Amen. Wow. Well, I don't want to hear this. Well, you can go home and watch whoever you want to on TV, but I'm going to preach what God gave me tonight. Amen. And when you realize that what the guy on TV said doesn't work, come get my CD. John will sell it to you for whatever he sold his for. Amen. Well, pastor, are you saying we shouldn't believe God for a miracle or we shouldn't seek God for healing? Doesn't the Bible say by stripes we're healed and call for the elders of the church and all of that? Yes, by all means we should pray and believe God to meet our needs. There's nothing wrong with doing everything we know to do biblically to receive a miracle or to be healed. There's nothing wrong with doing everything that is available to us medically in order to be healed and to recover and to get better. By all means, go. People say, well, should I pray or should I take the treatment? Bless God, I'm going to do both. Amen. Slap me with some oil and pass the Tylenol. I don't want to hurt. Amen. What are you going to do? I'm going to do everything. I'm going to do both. (laughs) I'm going to take Tylenol until you pray the healing in. Amen. (laughs) Oh, I don't know if I'm mad or anointed. We should do everything. I believe in miracles. I've experienced God's financial provision many times over. I've been healed in my own body, and I've seen other people healed when I've prayed for them. I've looked at the MRI scans of a man who came to our pastor study one night, and he had prostate cancer, and there were four blood vessels flowing into that tumor. And we laid our hands on him in the pastor study and prayed because he didn't want everybody to know that he had come because he wasn't from our tribe, see? He was a little nervous about the way we carried on in our church but he did believe that God healed and he wanted our prayers and so we laid hands on him and prayed for him in the pastor study amen privately and I watched him as he walked up two weeks later with an MRI scan where those four blood vessels had closed off and his tumor had shriveled up and died and the doctor said you don't have this anymore amen do you believe God heals absolutely I've seen God do it But I've also watched good Christians walk through great difficulty, suffer great trials, and even die in the faith. We all shout about the heroes of Hebrews 11, verses 33 to 35. Samson and Gideon and Jephthah and those who received their dead back to life and all those who did those wonderful things. And we all want to be in that group, but verse 39 says, And all these... Died in faith. Who are all these? Both groups. There's that group, but there's the other group who was sawn in half and slain by the sword and walked about in sheepskins, destitute and naked, of whom the world was not worthy. Oh, wow. What about that group? Which group had faith? Both groups had faith. The Bible says these all died in faith. The ones that got delivered and the ones that waited on their deliverance. Those whom God enabled to escape had faith. And those who found grace to endure had faith. I want to tell you at the end of the day, we've got to have faith in God. Well, I'm believing God for a miracle. Well, you better just believe God, period. 
Amen. Because some days you're on the escape list and you get healed and delivered. Glory to God. Shout your hair down on those days. Run. I'll run after you. Amen. Praise God. But other days we're on the endure list. And God doesn't take the problem. He strengthens us to go through the problem. Some days faith moves the mountains. Other days God strengthens the climber. Amen. Mm. You don't need this yet. You'll need it in a week or two. God's not a heavenly ATM machine where we insert three Bible promises, one prayer of faith, two drops of anointing oil, and type in in Jesus' name for a pen number to withdraw a miracle. He's God. He's sovereign. He's Father. Praying involves an ongoing dynamic relationship with God. We're not punching buttons on a computer. We're not trying to find the right combination of actions and phrases like some pagan witch doctor to force God to do something. We're walking in communion with our Heavenly Father who loves us and knows our needs before we ask. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He always answers, but not always the way we want Him to. And just like any good parent, He does not always do for their child what they are asking. And that's where the danger comes in because when God says to us what He says to Paul in verse 9, we have two choices to make. Amen? We have a choice to make. Amen. Go to that next frame, John. You see, God repurposes, verse 9, and says, Paul says, Therefore, most gladly will I rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When God doesn't do it the way we want to, we have two choices. Some people lose their faith. Say, lose their faith. I know people, I meet them all the time, who walked away from God. Because God didn't do it the way they wanted him to. And they're broken, and they're mad, and they're disappointed, and they haven't darkened the door of a church in 20 years. Because God let their baby die, or their marriage didn't get healed, or the financial breakthrough didn't come and their business still went under, or they raised their kids in the house of God, and they did the best they could, and the kids still grew up and went off the skids and didn't walk with the Lord. Do you hear me? And they got mad and they got frustrated and they turned it on the Lord. And the trial caused the trial that came at them, they, they made the wrong choice. They lost their faith over it. They didn't lean into God for the grace. They were open to God giving them the miracle. They were open to God giving them what they wanted, but they weren't open to God giving them what they needed. What they needed was grace to endure. What they needed was strength to stand up under the test. What they needed was for God to give them sufficient grace to meet the trial without caving in or folding up. Some people lose their faith. They get disappointed with God because it didn't turn out like they hoped. Or worse, like some preacher in a prayer line told them it was going to turn out before he left town with their offering in his pocket. Mm. Some of them left because they felt condemned. Surely there must be something in my life. Surely I must not have enough faith. God must be punishing me for something from my past. The enemy turns it on them in the form of guilt, in the form of condemnation. And they drop their head and they say, well, that's the reason I'm not healed or that's the reason this hasn't turned around. It's me. There's something wrong with me. I'm not good enough or godly enough. I don't have enough faith. Oh, dear heart, don't let the enemy do that to you. 
That's a lie, and it's a choice weapon of the devil to do that. Some people get mad at the church or the pastor. I've watched a friend of mine do this. The problem that I'm, the reason I'm not healed, he said, is not my fault. The Bible says, call for the elders of the church. And if they had enough faith, I'd get healed. Some sorry elders we got. That's why I can't get healed. Well, I've been in a couple of churches. I'd probably agree with that. Amen. <laughs> but this isn't one of them. They get mad. If I had enough people to stand in faith, if I had someone to agree with me, if I had a pastor who had the anointing, if my church had someone with the gift of healing, I'd get my miracle. Some people turn back because of wrong teaching and bad theology. They have no room in their belief system for mystery. They can't imagine that there are times when God withholds a miracle and decides to carry us through a storm rather than rescuing us from a storm. They don't understand that sometimes God repurposes our trials and turns them into blessings. That sometimes God has, is up to something. Some people lose their faith, but other people deepen their faith. They deepen their faith. Paul didn't abandon his faith in God because God didn't miraculously remove his thorn in the flesh. Paul was able to accept that God had a greater purpose in mind than Paul's comfort. For Paul, faith didn't mean trusting God for a miracle. It meant trusting God. End of sentence. Paul's persistent problem didn't destroy his faith. It developed his faith. It didn't push him away from God. It kept him on his face before God. It kept him humble. It kept him dependent. Receiving a miraculous deliverance from his thorn would have required him to exercise faith one time, but the thorn remaining required him to exercise faith every day of his life. I'm not saying the thorn was good, but I am saying the thorn did him some good. Verse 9, be therefore most gladly I will boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. What? Paul says, you see, what I figured out was that my thorn was not hindering my anointing. My thorn was the key to my anointing. Wow. The thing that we often wish God would remove is the very thing that for some of us keeps us walking with him and depending on him. And it's actually the key to our spiritual power. Why? Because every time Paul went in on his face, he didn't receive his miracle, but you know what he did receive? Strength and power and grace, sufficient grace. And you know what? Because he stayed on his face every day, Paul could stand up and he could keep going and he could beat down anything. He could whip any trial. He could face any temptation. He could overcome any test. He could make it through. Why? Because God had developed in him by means of this thorn the ability to stand and to endure and to make it. And he was unstoppable in his passion for God. He was unquenchable in his pursuit of God's purpose for his life. And it didn't matter what you did. He'd just get up and keep going again. You could beat him. You could put him on a ship. You could lock him in stocks. You could, you, you could horsewhip him. You could beat him with rods. You could stone him and throw him outside the city and leave him for dead. And the next day he'd get up off the rock heap and go back and dust off his Bible and preach again the unsearchable riches of Jesus. You can lock him in a Roman prison cell where he isn't able to do anything and he'll write two-thirds of the New Testament and send letters out to the churches that you and I 
are still reading and rejoicing over today. You'll take him to Rome and lock him and chain him to a guard. And every four, every four times a day, every six hours, a new guard will change. And what will happen is Paul will convert members of the Praetorian Guard to the gospel. And by the time you get to the end of his time at Rome, he writes back and says, The saints at Rome greet you, even the members of Caesar's own household. He converted members of Caesar's own family to Jesus. Locked in a chain. Lord, remove the chain. No, Paul, the chain is your one-way ticket to preach the gospel where you'd never get to preach it anywhere else. And so Paul says, I'll rejoice in that. I'll boast in that. I'll celebrate the fact that God has used me in those kinds of ways. And that's what he says in chapter 11. And I'm closing. But in chapter 11, he talks about that. Verse 23, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst in fasting often in cold and nakedness and besides these other things what comes upon me that what comes upon me daily my deep concern for all the churches who is weak and I'm not weak who is made to stumble and do I not burn with indignation if I must boast I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity wow And he wraps it up in chapter 12, verse 10. Therefore I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What does Paul say? As much as I would love for God to take away and remove all the problems, the reality is every time a problem comes, it drives me to my knees. And while the enemy thinks he is knocking me down in weakness, what he's actually doing is he's driving me back to the only source of strength that I've ever known. The Christian may fall to his knees, but that's as far as he'll fall. Because when he gets there, he'll find the strength of God and the help of God. Paul's thorn. Do you have a thorn tonight? Do you have an issue? Do you have something that you prayed would go away and it hasn't? Paul became more concerned about God's glory being displayed and God's kingdom being advanced than his own comfort. He could endure all things for Christ's sake. It was because of these weaknesses that the power of Christ rested on him. His problems were the key to his power. What will happen today if God answers your prayer the way he answered Paul's? Are you willing to move beyond the simple immature kind of faith that thinks a miraculous deliverance is the only kind of answer that God gives or that God always gives that answer? Is your faith strong enough to, and mature enough to trust God to answer your request the way that he chooses? Are you just believing God for a miracle or are you truly trusting God? Are you believing that whatever he chooses to do with your prayer requests will be good and right and for his glory and for your ultimate benefit? What do you want most? Is your highest priority to get relief from your painful problem? What if God's kingdom is better served by keeping things as they are, at least for now? 
What if the pain and difficulty of your current trial is intended by God to become a source of strength and ministry for others in the future? What if it is not your strengths, your gifts, your abilities that make you best suited to serve others? But it is in your weakness that his strength is displayed, in your problems that his grace is demonstrated. Are you willing for God to use your life that way? Like David Ring or Joni Erickson Tata or Helen Rosevere. God is rarely exalted when everything is going well. God's power is shown in our unusual response to suffering. People don't need to see super saints who have it all together. They need to see grace-empowered strugglers who know how to bear up under great difficulty and not lose their faith in God. For some of us, we don't like that message. For many of us tonight, though, a message like this comes as a wonderful relief. You mean I don't always have to have it all together? You mean I don't always have to come out with a miracle? You mean it doesn't always have to work out like a storybook ending? No, no it doesn't. And it doesn't mean you don't have faith. And it doesn't mean you're in sin. And it doesn't mean you're not godly. It doesn't mean you're not saved or you don't have the Holy Spirit. It may mean that God in His goodness has looked at your situation and said, at least for now, it's better for the kingdom and for your own development as a child of God that I allow this to remain a little longer. And can you trust me enough to do that? Can you trust my Father heart towards you that I would never waste your suffering and I would never allow you to go through something needlessly, but that I'll redeem and turn for your good purpose whatever you're going through tonight. Stand with me all over God's house. If the life of Jesus teaches us anything, he teaches us that we learn obedience through what God allows us to suffer. And that God being glorified often involves us facing a cross. Let me ask you tonight. Years ago I heard the story of some school children who came upon a cocoon. And they watched the little chrysalis as it was just beginning to open and the the little creature inside this caterpillar that had transformed into a butterfly was struggling to get out of the cocoon and it's fighting and it's tearing at the walls and the lining of the cocoon and it's struggling so hard and it seems like it'll never get out and one of the kids got the bright idea to take a pair of scissors and help the butterfly out of the cocoon and so he did he took the scissors and he snipped right at the side of the chrysalis and when he did sure enough the butterfly popped out And it fell to the ground, and it struggled, unable to fly. And the reason was because all the fluid in the butterfly's body, by struggling its way out of the chrysalis, is forced out into the wings and gives the wings their strength and their stability. And if he doesn't struggle his way out of the chrysalis, he'll never have the wings to fly. Many of us beg God to cut open our cocoons. But God's destiny for us is to be able to mount up with wings and fly. And sometimes God looks at us and says, it's not because I don't love you that I'm not going to take away your difficulty. It's because I love you so much that I'm not going to do this the way you want me to. 
because I'm developing something in you that I can't get to any other way. And this is working something in you that is precious and valuable to me. Your trial, your temporary test, your light affliction is working and developing in you a far more eternal, exceeding weight of glory. And God says, I can't do what you want me to do. Your vision is too small. You don't get it. You can't see it. You don't understand it. And frankly, I couldn't explain it to you if I tried. You still wouldn't get it. You've just got to trust me today. You've just got to trust me. Trust that I love you. Trust that I'd never put you through something needlessly. Trust my heart. Know that my plan for you is good. And if the cross was not the last word for Jesus, but the resurrection and the ascension were, then the cross that you and I face today will not be the last word for us either. But for the present time, we must submit to it. And we must trust God enough to surrender to His plan. Are you here tonight? Maybe you're here tonight and you're praying for a miracle. Pastor, will you believe with me for a miracle? Absolutely, we'll believe with you for a miracle. But we'll believe with you for something much greater than a miracle. We'll believe with you for God's all-sufficient grace. And whether that grace enables you to escape your trial by a miraculous deliverance, or whether that supernatural grace flows down and empowers you to endure the cross like Jesus did and bear up under it without collapsing and losing your faith, we'll believe God with you for what God promised. Amen? Amen. Oh, if you're frustrated tonight and discouraged, be encouraged tonight. God knows what He's doing. What did Job say? For He knows the way that I take. And when He has tried me, I will come forth as gold. God is working in your life tonight. He's not abandoned you. He's not forsaken you. He's not forgotten you. He's not written you off. You're not facing your troubles or trials tonight because of some horrible decision you made or some horrible thing you did in the past. God is at work. And He will take what the enemy is trying to use to destroy you and God will use it to develop you. And God will turn your hindrance into his helper tonight. What makes the difference? Your trust in God makes the difference. You can look at this trial and say, Pastor, I can't take this. And if, if this is the way God's going to treat me, then I'm going to go back to the world. Don't do that. That's a trap. Do what God's saints have always done. Shore up your faith and look at God and say, I trust you. I believe you. I'm going to count you faithful. I'm going to press into your heart. I'm going to allow you to give me the grace to endure whatever I must face ahead of me. I can't guarantee you which way it'll come out for you. But I can guarantee you that God's grace is sufficient for you. It's more than enough. And His strength will be made perfect in your weakness. And he doesn't have to get rid of your weakness to show his strength. His strength can shine right in the middle of your weakness. In fact, your weakness often becomes the very platform, stage, and occasion for his power to step up. Years ago, a great preacher used to stand at the side door while the organist played the prelude every Sunday and stand there and grip the door handle and say, God, I can't go out there. God, you've got to strengthen me. And right at the last minute, when the organ would play the last note, he would open the door and go sit down on the platform and pray for strength to go to the pulpit. And when the time came, he would go and he would stand in the pulpit 
and he would preach. And then he would go back home and rake himself over the coals and say, Lord, how did I do? And listen back through the tapes to see how he did. You say, really? He did it every week for year after year. But God used his ministry. Really? Yeah. His name was Dr. Adrian Rogers. Maybe you've heard of him. God's power rests on us. Not when we're strong. But when something in life drives us to our knees and we swallow our pride and we humble down and say, Lord, the only way I'm going to make it is your strength and your help. Will you show up for me? And if you do, everybody who knows me at all will know that you did it. I didn't. (laughs) Amen. How are you tonight? The altar's open if you need to pray. I've asked Chad to lead us in an old song. The words of it, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus through it all. I've learned to depend on his word. Tonight, maybe you need a moment to pray. Maybe you need a moment for somebody to pray with you. Maybe you don't. But before we go tonight, I want us to lift our voice in this old song of the church. And I want us to declare our faith to God that we don't trust God out, but we trust God to take us through. Amen? And he's faithful. Will you sing with us tonight? Let's lift our voice to the Lord. If you need to pray, the altar's open. Let's, let's worship tonight. Thank you for listening to our podcast at The Hill. We pray that you are blessed by this message. For more information on what's happening at The Hill and to stay connected, visit our website at foresthillcog.org, join our Facebook page, facebook.com slash foresthillcog, or download our app from the iTunes or Google Play Store.